If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 25. Can you imagine as you're turning there uh, what kind of hullabaloo and commotion would happen if we had 24 extra kids in here that just all got up and left to, to go to our children's ministry? Let's pray that that happens. I would love to see the chaos that would ensue during that transition. Let's pray for that. That would be fun. Uh, but just because the kids have left, don't, don't let that let all like 98% of the energy leave the room, okay? So let's still be here. Let's be excited to be in the house of the Lord and excited to sing His praises and, and get into His Word. As I said, we'll be in Acts 25 this morning. Let's pray together and we'll dive into God's Word. Father, we're grateful that we get to sing Your praises. We get to open Your Word and see what You have to say to us, Lord. And as we look at the life of Paul, I pray that we would be mindful of how he reflects Jesus and how we should follow him as he follows Christ. I pray that we would be people who are mindful of your kingdom and the eternal realities of people's souls and that we would be willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary so that uh, we can get the, the beautiful word of your gospel out there, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 25. Catch anybody up that hasn't been here in a week or two. Uh, a lot's been going on over the last few chapters. You've got Paul who's been arrested due to an altercation with the Jews uh, from Asia in the temple in Jerusalem. Paul had brought the offering that he had been gathering up from the churches in Macedonia. He goes to Jerusalem and he's captured by people that had seen his ministry in Asia. And so they drug him out of the temple and a mob of Jews were attempt, attempting to beat him to death when the Roman authorities stepped in and rescued him from his attackers. But they rescued him, quote-unquote, in a very strange way. They rescued him by arresting him. So they put him in chains in much the same way that it was prophesied over and over again as he was making his way to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was telling him, this isn't going to end well for you, but you still have to go. People were prophesying, you're going to end up in chains. And people were begging him not to go, but he still was going to go. He was willing to be arrested. He was even willing to die to, to see the mission that God had given him through. And after being arrested up until this point, up until chapter 25, Paul has testified to his innocence three times. Right? The first was in Acts 22 when the uh, Roman commander uh, was getting ready to take him into the barracks. He asked for permission to speak to the mob. And after being given permission to speak, he declares his testimony about how he met Christ on the road to Damascus in order to persecute people of the way, the very people that he is now defending with the gospel. Right? They listened to his account of that right up until the time that Paul said that God told him to take that mission to the Gentiles. And after that, they were ready for him to die again. And so after this, the second time Paul testifies to his innocence was before the Sanhedrin. And on this occasion, Paul didn't get to say much because after stating that he had lived his life before God in all good conscience up until that time, the high priest ordered him to be punched in the mouth. And after that, things went sideways. Paul lashes out verbally in anger, and then he pits the two groups that make up the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He pits them against one another by declaring a very uh, controversial statement saying that he believes in the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees believed in that, the Sadducees didn't, and they've been fussing about it for a really long time. And so he pits them against each other. 
And so again, Paul has to be rescued from certain death by the Roman authorities because as they were fighting with each other, they were worried that Paul would get caught in the crossfire and that he would be torn apart by the two groups. And so they intervened once again. And then after this, the third defense of Paul's innocence came as Paul is sent to Caesarea by the Roman commander to stand trial before a man named Felix. Felix was the governor of that whole area and he made the Jewish leadership come out to Caesarea in order to make their case against Paul. And in their per, uh, prosecution, they accused Paul of being a plague because he was an agitator of the Jews all throughout the Roman world, and they claimed that he had desecrated the temple. And the problem with their case is that they didn't have any actual proof that Paul had done anything that they're accusing him of. And this is Paul's defense in this instance again, b- before Felix. He's saying the people who have brought you this information aren't even the people that first accosted me in the temple. And when they found me, they didn't find me arguing. They didn't find me creating dissension. They found me worshiping in the temple. And so I didn't desecrate the temple. And the people that are accusing me aren't even here to say what I did when I was in the the Gentile areas. And I haven't done anything against Rome. So nothing that they have said can stick. And Felix knows that the Jews have no real case against Paul, uh, but because he wants to do the Jews a favor, he leaves Paul in prison. Right? This is a political move. So at the beginning of chapter 25, Paul has been in prison for two years. Completely innocent, in prison for two years. You've got the governor Felix is being called away from his position by the emperor Nero. He's been fired. He's not good at his job, and so the emperor has pulled him out. And he's replaced by a man named Portius Festus, which brings us to where we are today in chapter 25. And in chapter 25 and in 26, which we'll get to next week, Paul is going to again defend his innocence before he actually makes his way to Rome to stand before the emperor. So he's constantly pouring out his story as all of this is unfolding among this uh, laughable judicial system. Right? Everybody knows he's innocent, but because of politics, they don't want to commit to, to letting him go. But in those two defenses that we're going to give, the first one we're going to read about this morning, is he's going to sh- it's going to show that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, though it's been two years that Paul has been in prison in Caesarea, the religious leaders have not forgotten about Paul. They still want Paul dead. Right? But the case hasn't changed. Right? So each one of these defenses is a defense of the exact same case, and it hasn't changed. The, the, his innocent verdict, in our mind, is still the same innocent verdict that everybody's going to see is true. Right? They don't have any in- evidence that should keep him in jail, and they certainly don't have enough evidence for the Roman authorities to murder him. Right? But we're going to see, uh, as much as Festus strives for a just trial for a Roman citizen, he's going through the right channels to make this happen, he still isn't going to release Paul because he fears what might happen among the Jews in Jerusalem if he were to release him. All right, so we're going to take a look at that. We're going to look at chapter 25, verses 1 to 12. Let's begin with this morning. It says, Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him. And they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul, that Festus summoned him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore he said, Let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. 
When he had not spent more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Then Paul made his defense. Neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Paul replied, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you even yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then after Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. All right, so Paul is making his way up through the ranks of the Roman judicial system. Uh, we see at the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 25, Festus, the new governor, is making his way as a courtesy visit to the leadership in Jerusalem. These are the people that are going to cause the most trouble for him if he doesn't stay on their good side. And so his first act as governor is to go down and to make nice with some of these people who have been known to cause trouble uh, for other governors, obviously, like Felix. Um, Festus doesn't owe these Jewish leaders this uh, courtesy, uh, but the Jews are known troublemakers. They've, <laughs> for a long, long time, they've been known as troublemakers at this time. And if they make too much trouble while you're in that position of power, then you're not going to be in leadership over them that long. The reason is because Rome values order. They don't want you allowing people to riot in your cities. They don't want chaos. And so if you can't keep order, they're going to pull you out and they're going to put somebody in place that can keep that order. And so Festus, he makes his way to Jerusalem to meet with these Jewish leaders in order to build that working relationship with them. Right? They're not in charge. He's in charge, but they can make things rough. And sensing that this might be a good opportunity uh, to meet and sort of extort a favor out of this new inexperienced governor, they ask for a favor against the Apostle Paul. I mean, if, if Paul's been out of the picture for two years at this point, and you're looking for a favor, you would think that they might come up with something a little bit better than getting that guy dead, right? But that's exactly what they're trying to do. I mean, he has been living rent-free in their brains for the last two years, and so they present their case against Paul. They want Festus to move Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem in order for him to stand trial there. At least that's the pretense that they're putting out there before that. Luke tells us that if Festus agrees to this arrangement, then the Jews have an ambush set up so that they can kill Paul before he ever gets to Jerusalem. So this is the same trick they tried before he went to Caesarea. That was one of the reasons why the Roman commander sent him to Caesarea is because he found out about basically this exact same plot. Bring him down, let us investigate his case a little bit more and they were going to kill him 40 men had promised to kill him on the way they were going to ambush him well old tricks uh new day i guess because they're trying the exact same thing um but festus isn't keen on granting this request from the chief priests and the leaders um it doesn't seem to indicate that festus believes that this is a setup in any way right he's not suspicious but i think he does sense these people are trying to extort power from me they're trying to get me to do things for them that I don't necessarily want to do. And if Paul, a Roman citizen, is meant to be standing on trial, he should stand on trial in my city where I preside in my tribunal. All right? And so bringing that out of Caesarea would look like him saying, okay, they have more authority than I do. And Festus is not 
interested in that. So in Paul's case, if you want me to judge over him, you can come to me. All right, I'm not going to bring him to you. You can come to me. And they accept this offer. Uh, the, the governor, it says, spent a week in Jerusalem or so. And then he goes back to Caesarea. He sits on, sits on that tribal uh, council, a tribunal council, and he listens to their case against Paul. And we see pretty much the same thing. They made serious, serious charges against Paul. Uh, we're not told what those charges are this time. Uh, we can get a little bit of a clue based on Paul's response. I didn't break the Jewish law, I didn't desecrate the temple, and I didn't do anything against Roman law. So it's going to pertain to some of those things. Uh, but he also says that, again, you have no evidence of any of this stuff that you're bringing up. And that's not how this works. You have to have evidence in order to get a guilty verdict in a trial. He says, I didn't sin against the Jews. So what they said about that is not true. I didn't desecrate the temple. And I didn't break Roman law. All of this stuff, they cannot prove. They're just saying things. And even though Paul's innocence is very apparent, right? Even though it's very true, right? He, it says he still wants to try to do the Jews a favor, right? This is all politics, right? This is not about justice. This is about political gain for him, right? So he's, he asked Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial before me there. So he's saying, I'm going to go. I will preside over the trial, but are you willing to change locations? Right, Paul knows, though, he, he knows the game that the Jews are playing. Right, this isn't Paul's first day. So he knows, uh, he might not know exactly what the Jews are planning, uh, but he knows that sometimes these uh, transitions from one place to the other can be perilous. And so he's not interested in falling into this trap. Right, so because he's a Roman citizen, the, Rome, the law in Rome, it gives him a way out of this predicament. Right, we see that in verse 10. Paul says that he is where he should be to stand trial for the crimes that he's being accused of. Right, most of the crimes that he's being accused of took place outside of Jerusalem anyway. And so the Sanhedrin has no authority in the vicinities that he has been accused of these crimes. The only crime that they could really... Uh, convict him for was desecrating the temple, which they didn't find him doing. And so the other crimes against Rome, that was out of their jurisdiction. They have no way to, to make him guilty for those things. And so he says, I'm standing exactly where I should be. All right, I should be standing before you. You are the one that needs to be doing this judgment, and it needs to be done right here. Right? He says, I'm not trying to avoid a death sentence. Right? If I've done something that is worthy of death, I'm not trying to run away from that. But he's not willing to die so that someone can score political points with the leadership of the opposition, right? Even, uh, even being asked if he would be willing to stand trial in Jerusalem indicates that Festus is struggling with that balance of justice and politics. Are you willing to go? Because that would, that would really work better in my favor, right? I know you should be here. I know that would be justice. I know that you should be found innocent of all your charges. That would be justice, but these guys could make trouble for me, so I want to, be, I want to play nice with them as much as I possibly can. All right, so Paul doesn't want to take any chances that Festus might begin to think more about his political career than about what justice should be done there. And so he takes the responsibility completely out of his hands. He makes the decision that he wants to appeal to Caesar. All right, Paul knows as a Roman citizen he has the right to appeal his case before Caesar. But even more than that, Paul knows that it's God's will for him to present his case in Rome. 
He wants to testify. He wants Paul to testify about all that Christ has done in him and through him before some of the most powerful people in the world. And so he appeals to Caesar. And this appeal puts Festus in what we will consider a win-lose situation. All right? At first, on one hand, it lets him off the hook with the Jews. All right? There is literally nothing that he can do at this point when a Roman citizen appeals to Caesar because he's not getting a fair shake throughout the rest of the court process. There's nothing that the governor can do at this point. When he appealed to Caesar, he has no ability to keep Paul in custody at that point. Right, so basically he can say, I tried to help you guys out, uh, but Paul appealed to Caesar, so there's nothing I can do regarding your request. All right, so I'm stuck. My hands are tied at this point. So that lets him off the hook with the Jews. But on the other hand, now Festus has to come up with a reason why a clearly open and shut case has not been dealt a verdict of not guilty, and Paul has been released. Right, it's making its way to the highest court in their kingdom. And... It could make him look incompetent if this very clear case makes its way through all these different appeal processes and now it's standing before basically their Supreme Court and it's so obvious that he is innocent. And so he could run into a lot of trouble with that. Like at this point, there isn't much that Festus can do, right? He, he chose to waver on justice and lean into politics and now he's stuck. Now he has nothing to do. Paul has appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar Paul will go. And it says, a few days later, Festus sees an opportunity uh, to get some help regarding this situation from King Agrippa. We see that in verses 13 to 22. So follow along with me as we look at that. It says, several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, There's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I, asked them, uh, I answered them, That is not the Roman custom to give up someone before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The accuser stood up but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had certain, some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a, man, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss and a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So the King Agrippa that we are seeing here is Herod Agrippa II. All right, he's the son of Herod Agrippa I, who previously had James killed and Peter imprisoned in Acts chapter 12. Do y'all remember that? It's been a while. It's been a minute. All right, so I can forgive you if you don't remember you know, 13 chapters ago. But this is uh, in the same family line of Herod Agrippa, who was trying to kill people in order to keep the Jews happy. All right, so probably not the best person to have on your side in a court case. All right, he's also the great-grandson of Herod the Great. 
Because King Agrippa II was only 17 when his father died, he was deemed too young to be the ruler over Judea. And so the Roman authorities gave him uh, an insignificant northern kingdom. Um, so he, he has kingship, but he's not a significant king in any way, shape, or form. He has zero authority in this moment. He's only there, again, as a courtesy. He's just saying, hey, we may have to work together sometime in the future, so I wanted to make sure we played nice, just like uh, Festus did as well. Um, the only authority that he is given in the uh, Judea, in the Jerusalem area, is the ability to appoint the high priest. And so he likely was the one that appointed an Ananias to his position, and you see how well that turned out. right? So he doesn't have any say at all over what happens to Paul here, but... Festus sees this as an opportunity to pick his brain about Jewish customs. I mean, he's not, he doesn't know what's happening here. And so he decides uh, that he go, he's going to get some nuances in Paul's case. Now, Agrippa and his sister, Bernice's his sister, uh, pay a courtesy call on the new governor. They're showing respect. Um, and while he was there, Festus presents Paul's case to the king. He basically said that the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem want Paul dead, but the charges they have weren't nearly as bad as he thought. Like, you would want... You would think it was murder or, you know, something significant. And then he's like, um, they're arguing about theological differences and about some dead guy named Jesus that Paul says is alive. I don't understand what all this is going on. Uh, so he says, I'm at a loss at, as to what to do in this case. But Paul appealed to Caesar, so he has to go. Right. And after hearing this, Agrippa is intrigued over the case. He wants to hear from Paul. And so Festus sets that up. Uh, for the next day and we see a big pomp and circumstance uh, ceremony that's going to happen uh, surrounding Paul's testimony before Agrippa in the last few verses in chapter 25. Uh, look at those in verses 23 to 27. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command Paul was brought in. Then Festus said King Agrippa and all men present with us you see this man. The whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing to define, uh, nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. All right, so in these verses, we see King Agrippa and a whole lot of other Roman dignitaries uh, coming into this place. It's turned into a grand spectacle. It's given them an opportunity uh, to play the horns and do the parade and let everybody see that King Agrippa is there. A Festus is using this as an opportunity to show off that relationship. He, I mean, he might be an insignificant king, but he's still a king. Right, and he is sitting beside Festus. Right, so he sees he said this is an opportunity uh, for some good PR. Right, and so he gives him the opportunity to flatter King Agrippa as well out of making this big deal. So he gets gets good on both ends of this deal here. After everyone was there, Festus commands that Paul be brought in, and then he informs the crowd why this is taking place. The whole Jewish community wants to see Paul dead, but Festus hasn't been given any information that should lead to Paul's death. And this would lead any reasonable person to wonder why Paul is still in custody. I mean, he just said there's no reason for Paul to die. There's really no reason for him to be incarcerated at all. And so any reasonable person is going to wonder why he's been held for this long 
Right? Knowing this, Festus lays the blame on Paul's continued incarceration on Paul himself. He said, Paul, Paul said he wanted to go talk to Caesar. And so, my, again, my hands are tied. Uh, or else I might have released him. Uh, the problem is, he has nothing to report about Paul. Right? He's getting ready to send this man to the Emperor Nero. And he has nothing to report on why he's being sent. So he's about to show up at the emperor's, emperor's place. And the emperor's going to go, why are you here? And he's going to go, I don't know. And he's going to look at Festus and say, why is he here? And Festus is going to say, I don't know. And so this is not going to go well, right? So because he has nothing to report, he wants King Agrippa to weigh in on the case after the examination is over so that maybe he can give him some notes to write in his letter to uh, the Emperor Nero. And the last line that Luke shares with us, at least in my mind, is dripping with irony. Look at that again in verse 27. It says, It seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Yes, Festus, yes, it is unreasonable. This whole thing is unreasonable. What are you guys doing? Right? You should let Paul go instead of worrying about making the other Jewish leaders mad. Right? It is completely unreasonable for this charade to continue on. Right? If both Felix and Festus were more interested in justice and less worried about politics, this would have all been over again more than two years ago. But here we are. Paul is still incarcerated, and he's making his way to the highest court in the Roman kingdom for absolutely no reason at all. Right? Because two men refuse to do what is right, and they chose their political career instead of doing what is right. Now, I mentioned... A few weeks ago, when we started these chapters, these last chapters of the book of Acts, that I wanted you to keep in mind the similarities that we see through uh, Paul's life and Jesus' life as they go through their arrest and the procedures that follow that. Do y'all remember that? I pointed out some parallels between Paul and Jesus. Both Paul and Jesus were prosecuted before a Roman governor. Jesus was prosecuted before Pilate. Paul was prosecuted before both Felix and Festus. Right? They're both brought before a Jewish king. Right? Jesus was brought before Herod the Great. And Paul is here now being brought before uh, King Agrippa II. Both Paul and Jesus are innocent. And everybody knows it. Right? No one can find fault in either man but because of the political ramifications, neither one is released. All right? And the ending is a little different, at least for a little while. The ending for Jesus is that he dies at the hand of Pilate and Paul is sent to Rome for further trial. But if church history is accurate, it says that Paul will eventually die by execution from the Roman government. Because he's a Roman citizen, he can't be crucified, and so he is more than likely beheaded Uh, for all of this stuff that's been said about him. And, you know, we can look at all of this, and we can, depending on where you lean politically, depend on how you look at the world, how much time you spend on social media, and see all the negativity that they want to pour into us, right? The fear and the hatred that they want to bring out of us. We can look at all of this, And we might question either God's love or his sovereign lordship, right? It's easy to look at all the evil and hardship that happens in the world. And people might think, you know, we cannot be 
we cannot begin to process the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful God who allows this struggle the way that He does. And sometimes when hardship comes, it can be difficult for us to, to process that. Right? I don't know what you're going through right now, but you may be dealing with that very thing. You may be thinking about, if God loves me, why am I, why am I experiencing this? Why am I going through this hardship? What is God's purpose in this? But from a Christian perspective, we must take to heart that God is always at work. He's working through the ebb and flow of a sinful world, right? So that people's independent decisions are being used to work into his complete and total plan, right? Nothing is outside of his control. Right, Paul had suffered many things at the hands of sinful people and God didn't intervene. Right? In fact, he told Paul that this is going to happen. Right? When he was brought to salvation on that Damascus road, Jesus told him right then and there, you will suffer much for my name. But he's going to testify before the Roman authorities about the beauty of Christ. Right? Why did it have to be this way? Right? Why did, God could have done it any way he wanted to. Why did he do it this way? Well, the why question is very, very hard to answer because then we have to know the limitless mind of God, which we can't. That's completely impossible. So we may never know all the specifics, but Paul gives us a different way to properly think about the hardships that we go through in this life. In Philippians 1, 12 to 14, Paul says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Right, so this is written from a Roman prison cell. Right, Paul tells us that everything that he has gone through in this imprisonment has advanced the gospel. People who had never had the opportunity or would never have the opportunity to hear the gospel, God has sovereignly placed Paul in their path, in their life, so that they would hear the message of salvation. Paul goes on to say that most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord because of his imprisonment. Right? The gospel shines the brightest in our darkest moments. Right? When, when they see Paul getting after the kingdom of God, even in the midst of this trial and turmoil that he is in, it makes the, the light of the gospel shine brighter. Right? Of course, if everything's going well for you, why wouldn't you praise God? Right? Right? If you, on social media, I see it all the time. You've got God is so good. All right? They start off with that, which isn't wrong. And then it is almost always followed up by God giving them exactly what they wanted. Right? New job, cancer diagnosis is reversed or healed. You got bills or paid when it didn't seem like there would be money to cover it. You got accepted uh, for your first choice of college. God is so good in all of that. And that's not to say that we should not praise God when he gives us these good and precious gifts. We absolutely should. But God is good no matter whether we get exactly what we want or we get the exact opposite of what we want. God is still good. Right? The world can look at all the things that God gives us that we want and they can say, of course you worship the God who gives you everything. 
Like, why wouldn't you praise that God? But my life hasn't turned out that way. What about when things go bad? What about when our lives are struck with injustice like Paul? Right? What about when the disease doesn't go away? What about when we lose the job or we have the house fire? Or pick any number of things. What about when life's hard? If we can remain faithful, as both Jesus and Paul did during their trials, we show a watching world what we know to be true about God. We may not ever be able to answer the question, why did this happen to me? But we can always say from the bottom of our heart with 100% accuracy and that it is true that God is good and that God loves me and that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins to prove it. If I lose everything else and I still have Jesus, I still have everything. But if I have everything else and I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. Let's think about these things as we close in prayer this morning. Father, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that no matter how unjust this world can be, no matter how many struggles and hardships that we go through, I'm grateful to know that you love me, that you are good, and that you proved it because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I pray that everyone here today feels that deeply in their soul. And if any doesn't, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convince them of the truth of those statements. That you are good, that you love them, and that Jesus died on the cross to save their soul. And Lord, as we go from this place and we go back to our regular lives day to day, I pray that you would help the Holy Spirit guide those moments so that we can remember and believe that we have been sovereignly placed in this world to shine your light no matter how hard this life may be. So as we leave here today, Lord, I pray for opportunities to sing praises to your name. God, we sing praises to your name when things are going great and we get the gifts of, that you have blessed us with, Lord. And, but we also sing the, that you are good and you are loving and you are kind even when life's hard. Help us to remember that as we go from this place this morning. Lord, I love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.